Well, boys, looks like you started the fun without me. You're all sick. Every last one of you. We're going to need a bigger gun. What's the matter? You scared of things that go boom? My name is Eric Exandra 13. I'm here today with Michael Kester. Oh, come on. It's really funny if you do my middle name when you do that. Uh, what is your middle name? I don't know your fucking middle name. What the hell? Oh, it's it's Eric. <laughs> no, it's not. Shut up. Yeah, it is. What it totally year is, is. This? <laughs> How did I? What? Yeah. No, my middle name is your first name. Oh, my God. Come on. I think you're making this up. No, it's a, it's a, it's a fact. I've known you over 900 years. <laughs> Wait, over 9,000? Is that what I'm supposed it's to? over 9,000, yeah. I didn't realize I was doing a meme until... <laughs> and here joining us to explain the poem he would have recited about his favorite sports concerning birds, Michael Eric Kester. Yes, thank you. It's weird to say now, isn't it? Yeah, I don't like it at all. <laughs> um... So uh, there was something, there was something, I had like this whole thing that I wanted to talk about beforehand, but I forgot. Well, it's, there's two movies. So let me start oh, I remember. Here. Oh, Jesus. Uh, yeah, so there's two movies and the movies are um, A Pigeon Set on a Branch Reflecting on Existence. Did I get it? Yeah, you got it. Okay. And then we're pairing that with a much more memorable cockfighter. The thing that I wanted to say on the air. Um, more memorable title, by the way. I don't know what right. you're. Yeah, for sure. Um I don't necessarily want to put one of our um, one of our pod manity. I believe I believe uh, you know one one of our one of our favorite patrons, uh, Ross Mahler. Mm -hmm. But he actually hit me up on Twitter recently and said that we have just been knocking it out of with pairs this year on the show, which is great because we've done three now four. And immediately I just felt the pressure and I just wanted to like give you some of that stress today live on the air as we're going into maybe the first time we fail. Maybe this is the, the time, maybe episode four is where the ball drops. Well, the reason I know it isn't is because I look at these movies and so desperately want to know what you think about them. Yeah. That I'm I'm on a mission to get answers today. <laughs> so those are always my favorite episodes where I'm like, God, these fucking movies, I got to talk to Michael about this. And one other thing I do want to say, anybody who's been following along since the beginning of uh, History of Double Feature, which is four or five episodes ago. Mm-hmm. We do have this uh, overarching journey where we're comparing exploitation films to French extreme films. Cockfighter is very certainly in one of those two camps. Not going to tell you which. <laughs> and it, it is separate from that conversation. I don't want you to think that it's going to kind of get roped into that conversation. There's a whole other conversation I'd like to have about it. It may be referenced later in the journey, but those shows are sort of more self-contained than this. So Yeah, I am seeing a lot of Michael Kester people pop up yeah. in Cockfighter, though, so that'll be interesting. <laughs> yeah, that show is a fucking hit, by the way. So if you haven't checked that out, I know it's a couple episodes ago now, but Marijuana and Criminal Lovers is where we started that journey. And I know this is pretty easy to miss because it's a little weird, but we tried to signpost, um, you know, you don't have to watch those movies to listen to that show. We know they're a little weird to get, especially Criminal Lovers, and that won't always be the case with the, the Journey episodes. They'll get a little easier. But if you just want to start on that, it's a good place to start. And if you're really excited by it, or this, 
or really anything from this five episode run, it's patreon.com forward slash double feature. We are looking for you too to join up and send us random messages about hitting it out of the park or what the fuck was that movie or, you know, where do I file my legal petition for you making me watch this or, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Patreon.com forward slash double feature. It's where you can go. It's where your lawyer can go. Everyone can go there and get their needs met. That's perfect. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, we're going to spoil the films, which is not the same as ruining the films, but we are going to, I mean, we're not going to try, but it's just the nature of these conversations. You may find out more about the pigeon sitting on the branch reflecting on existence than you wanted to had you not seen the movie. Um, Cockfighter, it's in the title, but, you know, there's there's actually way more to it than the movie needs. Um, <laughs> and we're going to talk about that. <laughs> Yeah, Pigeon definitely goes in uh, in that pantheon of uh, you just fucking try to spoil me, buddy. <laughs> right? so, you can't be like, well, in the final scene of Pigeon, this is what happens. Oh, a pigeon sits on a branch reflecting yeah. on existence. Fuck, I spoiled the ending. That's an early scene. Um, yeah, it depends what order you watched all the scenes in there, my friend. No. That's true, you're right. Three right. for a loop. Okay, so, I mean, obviously we have like... Um, you know, I feel like we've been a little lazy about uh, explicitly calling out the themes lately. Yeah. And what funnier an episode before... <laughs> we'll start on Cockfighter, but yeah, what funnier an episode to try to call out the themes. It's like a... Yeah. I want to say an existential bird double feature, but I, I feel like there's even a word and I can't quite find it, but it's not even, you know, it's underground bird fighting you know those type of birds yeah and a pigeon which is kind of you know of the um the oppressed class of street bird for sure and i wanted to say it's sort of like a like a a trash bird double feature but i sure. got yelled at by the members of the pigeon community this week when i was uh spitballing these ideas basket of deplora birds right <laughs> right yeah people didn't uh don't you know <laughs> we don't talk about those years, all right? That's behind us now. All right, so I don't know how to best represent the type of uh, of sort of scrappy fall that will be going yeah. on in, in this show, but you yeah. guys get it. Yeah. I just wanted a lot of, you know, I wanted a lot of credit for this uh, thing I didn't even come up with, so. So you want to start with Cockfighter first? Yeah, and I mean, uh, maybe just log line it straight away. It's actually super easy. This is an easy one. A man who once lost the cockfighting title by running his mouth has a samurai-like swearing to silence until he can once again reign champion of the cockfighting world, throwing everything else away in order to achieve the title. Yeah, it's uh, Kurosawa meets Birdman or whatever. You got it. Right, yeah. and it's pretty much right in that pocket. I love that you compare it to Samurai. It's a Samurai right? movie, dude. Yeah. This is a Samurai movie. Yeah, so I mean, I think I kind of... like it's a country-fried Samurai flick. I can feel out some of the themes, but I actually sort of cheated because I recognize all the names involved. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it might be better because I feel like these names are so in your uh, particular palette. Like this is mm -hmm. on a shelf in your house, I know. 100%. With like a whole, <laughs> a whole network of, there's like a cinematic universe of people involved here. So I thought maybe it'd be best to go over the people first. Okay, yeah. 
So the one I'm going to, I'll tag him, but he'll be the last one I go to. So Roger Corman, this is from, what's the, what's the house that he was with at this time? I get it all mixed up. Oh, this is New World. Still yeah. New World. Yeah. Okay. So Roger Corman produced this with New World Pictures. It's directed by um, Monty Hellman, who, you know, went on to make other movies. He was like really early in the, in the Corman camp. Big poster for Warren Oates, mm-hmm. who we've seen on double feature um, in Two Lane Blacktop, Race with the Devil. Uh, Richard Linklater actually said uh, during a screening of Two Lane Blacktop, have you, have you heard this? <laughs> this uh, is a good way to just rope Richard Linklater in here too, because I was worried he wouldn't get connected to this group. So Richard Linklater said <laughs> at a screening of Two Lane Blacktop, he gave 14 reasons why you should love Two Lane Blacktop. And reason number six was, uh, quote, something like, there was once a god who walked on this earth named Warren Oates. Wow. So just to give you an idea of the sort of reverie that Warren Oates had, especially in the film community at the time, he was this powerhouse sort of, you know, powerhouse Kentucky guy, right? But he was really, really deeply rooted in the the gritty, more... I don't want to say exploitation because it's not explicitly that, but he did a lot of like hard westerns and road movies. And I mean, Cockfighter is in some ways, you know, his Mona Lisa, but in some ways it's the opposite of that. Mm. You got your Harry Dean Stanton, who exists way outside of the campy 70s universe, like went on to be like an actual monster actor but we saw him um i mean we saw him what paris texas escape from new york he's also got a really good role in the straight story oh yeah that's right gotta yeah. name check that shit season three the return yep of twin peaks but back to roger corman um roger corman for anybody who's not super familiar essentially you know they call him what the king of the b movies he was mm. recent he did like that interview um recently on joe bob that just golden. Highly recommend going back and finding that uh, Joe Bob episode with Roger Corman. But he really sort of invented um, independent cinema in a ton of ways, figured out how to capitalize, uh, how to turn no money into some money. Um, famous for, you know, his autobiography, I've mentioned it on the show, is How I Made a Thousand Movies in Hollywood and Never Lost a Dime. Yeah. Right? That's his autobiography. Yeah. Uh, this is the one he didn't make money off of. That's why it's notable. For oh, me. really? I didn't know that. It came out, couldn't find an audience. It's kind of, well, we'll talk about why maybe that is. So Corman pulled it, renamed it Born to Kill, put it out, couldn't get any traction. And so this one just sort of like languished as the one New World Picture Roger Corman flick that he lost money on. Yeah, these really are the the uh, the sort of underdog birds that yeah. we are talking about. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's surprising. I mean, Corman also had, uh, I can't remember the exact title, but it's something to the effect of Corman's World. I think that's the name of the documentary, mm-hmm. which talks to a lot of the the people who were around those films kind of in that camp. Yeah. And yeah, you know, you you see your Dick Millers from there. and You got to have a Dick Miller, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it. it's almost hard for me. You know, the thing that's tricky about Corman for me is he did make so many fucking movies that it's not like this was a little troop. Because if you haven't seen Corman movies before and this is, you know, your first one. That's which, impossible, but yeah. I, I know. If you didn't first, realize you've seen a Corman movie before. Look, I don't know, man. Um, 
There was a time where I was much older than uh, I'd care to admit where I'd seen basically nothing but movies that I was trying to put on the show to sure. <laughs> show you where I owned 50 DVDs and those were the 50 films that I had seen. For sure. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, if you if you see this movie, you hear about some of these actors or you've even seen a couple Corman movies, you sort of understand like, okay, there's a little bit of a troupe. But, real, you know, go to the guy's IMDb. Just look at the films and look at the directors. And a lot of those directors were PAs on the other movies editors, you know, worked in all all various capacities. But this was, this is a really, um, he's an important guy in independent cinema. Yeah. And sort of telling the story of American independent cinema. And this film, especially for for that reason, I mean, this, in my mind, this makes it all the more notable because even the people who know Corman and talk about Corman talk about like, oh, the model worked. Yep. He had this idea and he was able to get this done. And so it is interesting to see a time where that doesn't work out. Well, it's also the th- one of the things that's really fascinating about Cockfighter to me also. Um, you know, we've, we've already talked about this a lot this year on the show, but sort of uh, not, this isn't necessarily one of the official video nasties, but sort of these movies that came out that people swept under the rug, not because they weren't successful or they weren't very good, but because they sort of represented things or showed things that like maybe weren't a good idea to show in movies. Mm -hmm. And with video nasties, you know, we talked about how that was just like fucking motel hell, like just some random (laughs) schlock that like everybody agrees is just a good time. So I don't know if it's ever gotten officially banned because I don't think it had the kind of, um, it, I don't think it had the kind of clout to make any sort of list like that. <laughs> the reach to get banned in the first yeah. place, yeah. But I, I mean, going back, I saw Cockfighter the first time way back when I was first sort of uncovering the Corman planet that lives under our planet, that holds our planet up. But um, It's Corman's all the way down. Yeah. <laughs> um, and... I remember watching it and just sort of feeling like I like I mentioned in the in the um in the logline how this is just like a really gritty country fried samurai movie. You know, there's a lot of there's been a lot of conversation in recent history about how your how Yojimbo and Seven Samurai were just Americanized to Fistful of Dollars and The Magnificent Seven, you know, and that sort of I think became everybody's understanding of how Americans adopted samurai movies. But I think there's something to there's something to cockfighter in that it's like very deeply rooted in pride, will lose everything for the honor of victory, you know, all of this stuff. And that was that was what I got the first time I watched it. And this was maybe I was probably still in, in Chicago. So what's that? Fucking 10 years ago. Now Watching it again for this show, and anybody who watched along, I'm really interested to know your input, so I'll just ask you. Um, it's really difficult to watch a movie that's just fucking killing chickens the whole time. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's really tough. I'm surprised. Well, you're talking to a, a vegan, you know. So there is a, there's a part of me that's like, I, I don't come at veganism from like an animal rights kind of perspective, mm-hmm. but I would be lying to say it doesn't make me softer on animals. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of uh, like, just don't eat meat for a while and suddenly meat becomes repulsive to you. That's just how taste works. Mm-hmm. 
Well, maybe I shouldn't blanket it that easily. I know a lot of people miss, you know, they go vegetarian and miss meat or whatever. But I'm not like that. Sure. You know, I I am I'm repulsed by the smell of meat. And as uh, time goes on, I do develop, like, I don't have pets. I've never been a pet person. But I do develop a kind of affection for animals. And the show doesn't, doesn't fucking uh, help that. You know, we we did this pigeon movie, and because the title's so long, I went around in my life this week calling it The Pigeon. Mm-hmm. I went to go see it somewhere. I was like, I'm here for The Pigeon. <laughs> you know, like, it, it fucking personifies mm-hmm. and, uh, and humanizes this thing. So, yeah, when, you know, I sit down to watch Cockfighter, and I watch it all by myself because I wouldn't dare drag another person in to see totally. the movie Cockfighter. Totally. And I'm like, all right, this probably isn't that bad, but, you know, I'll fucking watch it. And, yeah, it's brutal. And, I mean, it's, you know, this is, um, there's some ugly stuff in, in both of these movies today. Mm-hmm. And it's part of the, the film-watching experience to go through that. Well, and I feel like from a from a point of you know, if we're gonna like touch back on our theme, which is you know the existential bird double feature, it's really one of the things that I I still really get from Cockfighter is this. There's it's sort of um, Michael tortures a duckling double feature. That's what I wanted. There you that go. Would have been all right. <laughs> there's uh there's this sort of shadowy. I, I hesitate to call it like there's this this shadowy like classism, which I think is what you're talking about with these type of birds that exists in cockfighter. For real though. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, yeah. because you know, the thing the thing that like cockfighter really makes me think of is something uh Django Unchained sort of touched on it, but you know, the Mandingo fighting mm-hmm. where it's like, this isn't a person, this is my property, I'll have it totally, fight your property totally. and the winner gets eleven pence or whatever. And that's sort of like this this natural progression of like, uh, which is actually why I wanted to bring up this Richard Linklater quote, because I feel like it really applies in a nefarious way to Cockfighter, where Richard Linklater said, there was once uh, a god who walked this earth named Warren Oates. So his character, he's the, he's the silent samurai, the silent cockfighter, the eponymous titular character of the movie. The drifter. This is a Monty Hellman movie, the drifter. Uh, <laughs> um, and he is the god of the the roosters. Mm. They live and die by his thumb in giant trash bins too. Yeah, like in full full dumpsters. And the very first, the very first fight he takes place in the fir- before he's you know we're not even endeared to him as a talented cockfighter if ever we could be but you know that's yeah, not even yeah. presented to us as you know this is shitty but he's the he's the king of rollerball mm-hmm. and he, the first thing he does he's got that fucking razor blade and he's yeah, shot yeah. and you're just like dude immediately there's like this sort of there's this sort of i mean in within the movie it's this um it's this like at all costs I will win. I I have nothing to lose oh, yeah. and everything to gain. But as in 2021, you watch this movie and you're like, it's really hard to not see this guy as a monster from point A. Well, my whole theory of modern American life is that we're constantly on the lookout for upcoming monsters. Mm-hmm. You know, so when we see somebody who is a cockfighter today, it's not so much about. The bird, like when I watch this movie, yeah, birds fighting, it feels pretty bad. 
But the part that really gets me, if I'm being honest, is the reverse shot of all the guys standing around, mm-hmm. applauding, screaming, waving, totally. their, you know, cartoonishly sure. waving bills in the air, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. The thought of, well, if they could do this, what else could they do? Right. And their just inability to, to go, well, like, I don't care about this thing. Therefore, I can go to the most depraved levels with it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, God forbid that that thing happens to be something that is more, you know, that I'm more humanly invested in like another person or, sure. you know, wherever your mind goes with it. And that sort of that sort of I think what extrapolates to the classism of the movie is that these men, it's not necessarily, you know, the thing that's that's interesting about it from like a modern day American standpoint is it's not wealthy people pitting yeah, chickens yeah. against each other. Because if wealthy people wanted things to fight, it'd be fucking homeless people. We know how that goes. Mm. But instead, this is this is like this is the nearly homeless type of this is like a post-depression poor sort of Mm -hmm. person in the late 60s and 70s in the south and they have they have scraped together their limited amount of power in the in the scope of things and they're lording it over chickens because chickens can't fight back and they have power over chickens and we're gonna kill them anyway because they're basically just food that fights so I do think that character is interesting, though, because he's, you know, if you if you want to get at the intention of the movie or maybe a theme that's a little closer to mm-hmm. where this uh, movie traditionally plays around with, you know, why this is so familiar to me is because I've seen Tulane Blacktop. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I kind of know the existential road movie. Mm-hmm. And the existential road movie and the existential chicken movie is like the same fucking movie, right? It's the right? same movie, yeah. And I, one of the things that I find really endearing about this movie, for as gruesome as parts of it is, is that this guy basically, you know, and I, he has this relationship with this woman who's just constantly like really wants to be in his life. I'll, I'll try to describe this in the most positive terms, but basically throwing herself at him. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, fucking pay attention to me. I'm trying to be with you. I'm making time for you. I'm putting in the work. You know, dedicate some space in your goddamn life for me. And he's got this thing going on where he's like, I'm on a silent quest. Mm-hmm. I've got to get good at chicken fighting. And so, uh, are Cox chickens? I, I don't know. I keep but, like yeah, flippantly saying sure, that as a gag. And now I'm like, sincerely, <laughs> I'm on a mission. I've got to get good at cockfighting. You know, maybe I'll cheat. Oh, no, no, no. Cheating's not the right way to go. I'll put in the time. I'll put in the effort. I'm climbing the ranks. You know, I'm really like workout montage. We're doing Rocky, basically. Mm-hmm. Up to the point where it's literally like, okay, I won, but on a technical qualification, I got to really get it. And then just manages to get good enough to like win by a, a sliver. Mm-hmm. Finally, victorious. He is the champion. And then he goes and has this conversation with her. And she's basically like, yeah, the champion of fucking cockfighting. Why'd you dedicate your life right. to that? That's right. stupid. Well, and that's <laughs> it's just like, I love the sincerity <laughs> of this guy who, you know, he's he's drifting through the, you know, the existential part is like the meaninglessness going down the road and then the path kind of narrows and becomes more clear. Mm-hmm. And you sort of develop the sense of purpose, but the sense of purpose is ultimately meaningless. It's cockfighting. It's a, you just choose a thing to become sure. really important to you, hundred percent, and then you go after it like it's the most important thing in the world, and it ultimately doesn't matter, right? What it is until a person shows up at your door and goes, "You picked a dumb one, though." Yeah, 
But I mean, yeah, you're right. They're all dumb ones, essentially. Or at least there's somebody that thinks the one you've picked is dumb. Sure, sure. Or maybe they're dumb, or maybe they're not. Or maybe they're a pigeon sitting on a branch reflecting on existence. I want to try and divide this movie into two halves, which is like, or the approach to it, which is sort of like the practical stuff about the movie and then the like, the I don't know, theoretical or the the pretentious part. Right. So, so half one is a pigeon sitting on a branch. Thank you. And half two is reflecting on existence. Yeah, you got it. You got it. Yeah, I mean, if you didn't see this movie, you know, I'm not sure uh, I want to logline yet so much as just kind of give you an overview, but maybe I can't logline because it's so hard anyways. What you're going to watch in this movie is... Uh, it's more than an anthology. When I say series of vignettes, I mean like 20 fucking vignettes that are very short and static. Ultimately, many will appear without point and you will never move from, you know, a wide angle lens ever. Not a single close up or camera movement at all or even mm-hmm. medium wide shot. Right. That's that's the thing. That's one thing that it's actually really easy to break that down for anybody who hasn't seen this movie. And if you haven't see it, but you say there's twenty vignettes, let's just let's just settle on there's twenty vignettes, which means there are twenty shots in the movie. Yeah. Camera <laughs> yeah, right. Twenty vignettes, twenty shots, the camera is in twenty places. For the whole movie, each vignette, the camera's in the corner of a space and always positioned so that you can see through as many consecutive doors as possible. Mm-hmm. And that's it. It doesn't move. And you can't tell what's going on. You can't tell what's important. There's a whole scene where the character who appears to be the main character in the scene is not the main character and two people that you can see through a window are actually carrying the scene. It's just... That sort of the camera, the camera does you no favors in the understanding of this film. I, yeah. And I mean, I think again, when we talk about the practical, that's exactly the way to describe it. And then when we talk about the sort of um, reflecting on existence, I think that, uh, I don't know, like I tie a lot of the way I feel to the, what sure. the camera's telling us. So, I mean, one of the things that I reflect on with my own existence after watching this movie is kicking myself in the teeth for watching the third movie in a trilogy. But what are you going to do? No, no, keep it accessible. Keep it accessible. <laughs> just wander into a movie. Right. When I saw this movie, I saw it in a theater. People just wandered the fuck into it. Let me tell you a little bit about this experience because it actually gives me like a lot of fucking hope when most things regarding film don't. But, uh, I go see this at a theater in New York, Little Art House Theater, and it's sold out when you, uh, you, know, you go to buy a ticket. So I got tickets before they sold out. But the day that it happens, this weird little pigeon movie I've never heard of, which I only know because I saw a trailer for it in the same goddamn theater seeing something else. And I'm like, oh, this looks weird. Okay, you know, maybe this is good material for the show. I want to see this weird movie, so I'm going to go regardless. And although it's sold out, it is a downpour here. Right. I mean, like the stories you hear across the country, but New York is in a state of like, uh, it's apocalyptic trying to go outside. Right. Right. And of course, you take public transit to get there. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, nobody's going to be there. We'll be the only people there. And we get there, and they're also showing eight and a half. So when I get there, the lobby's actually pretty packed because eight and a half, you know, it's a, it's a very well liked film, especially, uh, in an art house. That's like the film you want to fucking go to in an art house. So I, I get it. But then they, uh, they call the doors open and everybody walks in, not for eight and a half, but to see the pigeon movie. 
And we all sit down and the theater, everybody showed up. Nobody stayed home to this movie. Everybody showed up in the pouring rain to watch this weird movie. And so that already just makes me happy that people are like, I don't know how the fuck people hear about this. I couldn't imagine there's 200 people on earth who, you know, are such fans. They would have braved a rainstorm to like do this, but here they are. And the thing that was awesome about watching this and why I even bring this up is, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the staging of what a lot of this movie looks like. And it really is like every frame is elaborately staged. So, you know, the set, the light, everything has a, a great amount of intention. It looks like a, a Crudson photograph. And I sent a friend of mine a bunch of screenshots of the movie. And if you just saw the movie, look up at the screenshots and just like stacked one after another in our messages window. It just gave me even more respect for the craft of like, look at these highly engineered setups. So for the kind of meme of, oh my God, this photograph, isn't it like a Renaissance painting mm-hmm. that people will occasionally talk about? I mean, this movie is about as close to a literal, like you look around the frame and different things are happening. It's a little akin to a museum exhibit in that sense and of course in many others. The reason that I mention it is watching this with 200 people, as you could imagine, different pockets of the audience will notice things at different times. And it was a truly wonderful experience sitting there, watching the movie, reading the subtitles, staying engaged, wondering what's going on in the scenes, as some scenes will just play out with seemingly nothing going on. And then occasionally a group of people will catch like the moment that's been happening and they'll like start to lose it. But the fact that there's four people giggling and everyone else kind of going, what the fuck? Now we're all watching those people going, what are they seeing? And then another side of the theater will get it. And so there's this weird, it's not like a wave that washes over, but just all of these random pockets. It's like somebody is whispering jokes into the headphones of individual audience members at different cues. And it was one of the most bizarre, it just requires an audience to see it like that. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the fucking weirdest things. It reminded me of, we, we talked a little bit once about seeing Hereditary. And, you know, there's like a visual gag in Hereditary that different people will catch on to, you know, as it happens. And I thought about Ari's movies a lot watching this. Like, oh yeah, I bet this mm-hmm. fucking guy was watching pigeon movies in New York, of course. Definitely true. <laughs> right. But it's, yeah, it's like, a, it's a very unique thing for that to happen. So I don't know, is there a better log line for the existential part or is it, you know? I mean, no, it's it's... You know, one of the when it comes to things like this, I always just want I wish I could memorize the uh intro to rubber. Oh yeah. For yeah. a logline. But essentially, you know, the the thesis statement of the intro monologue in the film rubber is no reason. What I found really rewarding about this film was going back to basics on why we even started doing the logline exercise in the first place which was you're looking at this movie and you're kind of going like, wow, that was puzzling. How do I even attempt to start getting something out of it? And I think this is a movie that could be very hard. Mm -hmm. And it would be interesting to see if we can use the log line. I mean, I think we can. I think think it would be interesting to see how you can use a log line to sort of draw out the themes or, or commonalities in what the movie's talking about. Because at the very least, the movie does a lot of stuff. 
It's got a lot of these vignettes, and there's probably some common thread through them. And so, you know, I don't know. I mean, I guess we, we've got an idea for the logline. We know it's vignettes. A little something happens in each one. And if you're going to do a better logline than that, you probably need a coherent theme to say it's about something. But after having seen it, maybe it's better just to go, okay, let's, let's work through a couple scenes. Like, what's memor- what scenes do you remember out of this movie? I mean, there's some obviously memorable scenes where there's a horse in a bar. That's a big one. The king comes in, or the prince, right. or whoever that is, right? The, the Napoleon. And they come back to that one a couple of times, right? Mm-hmm. So that's another thing, right away, boom. Right. They're coming back to a few of these a couple of times, which actually like instills more meaning and makes you feel like you're really, mm-hmm. you should be getting something out of those. The scene that, the scene that is probably the scene I remember the most deeply is the one with the, uh, the gentleman standing outside the restaurant apologizing for being stood up. Uh-huh. While the uh, while there's a breakup happening inside the window, but the reason that that stands out to me is because it is marginally explanatory of an earlier scene where those two characters were having a very weird mm-hmm. series of moments, and then to see them break up sort of off camera, almost like that's not really why we're here. They just happen to be in this restaurant that the, we're yeah. we're focusing on this fucking cuck apologizing for somebody being a dick to him, which is what I got from it. But also they're breaking up. So, you know, two birds stoned at once or whatever. And then there's there's sort of the, uh, what is the only through line? The only through line to me is the two guys trying to sell their lame jokes. Oh yeah, we see that, right? They've got their, yeah. uh, their case of vampire teeth. Right. I mean, by the end, you see those guys so often, you and I could almost do the pattern, right? It's like the vampire teeth, the fun bags that make a cackling witch mm-hmm. Halloween sound forever, and you know Uncle Creepy or whatever his <laughs> name is. <laughs> no, no, that's uh, Steve Barton. You're thinking of, uh, <laughs> Uncle Creepy. No, it's like one one tooth Joe or oh, yeah. okay. So we can't quite do their job. They make it look easy. Those guys. Yeah, but yeah, they're traveling around selling gags, and they kind of have a moment of oh, you know, we like to make people happy. We like to make people laugh or whatever he says. And those guys, interestingly, they kind of seem to get into more and more of a... I mean, eventually there's a rift. Mm-hmm. So they're, they do have an arc. Mm-hmm. And we see, them, we see them enough that they're one of the ones that stands out most clearly to me. as okay, here we have an arc. Mm-hmm. All right, we're getting some normal cinema stuff going on here. We got characters, we got arcs. You know, the ones that stick out to me are the ones that you're not supposed to say really fucking stick out to you. But like, they're really cruel, hard to watch stuff. You know, the scene with the monkey yeah. is both very funny and also like cockfighter-esque. Yep. And it's mm-hmm. sort of like, oh man, this is terrible. And then when the monkey gets shocked, it's like worse, but kind of better because it's funny for a second. I mm-hmm. don't know. It's a really fucked up scene. <laughs> and like you sort of, I feel like I don't want to laugh at the The feeling watching it with an audience was like the nervous laughter. Mm-hmm. Sort of, we can't believe what's going on. And then when the woman repeats the the phrase we hear over and over on the phone. But that goes immediately into loading. It looks like some kind of, you know, colonizers loading a bunch of black people into a furnace to make a little musical ditty for a bunch of crusty old aristocrats. Mm-hmm. Which is just like, 
Man, was that tough to watch. Yeah. With this movie, that actually, that, the very first scene, the opening scene, maybe the second scene, the first scene is, you know, the guy looking at the, the taxidermy bird. Uh-huh. But the second scene, the second scene is the, um, the dude having the heart attack, the three siblings arguing over the mother's uh, purse being buried with her. And those early scenes, obviously they're dealing with death. So I know mm-hmm. that certain, um, I don't want to say morbidity, but yeah, reality to, to the understanding of the film, the inevitability of death. We all, so we're all fucking going to die, deal with it or don't, or, but you can't change it. But two, the way that these characters are all painted like ghosts and the fact that there's like a certain melodrama to the performances that's, yeah, that's yeah. a little nuanced. So that really early on, helps me hang my proverbial hat on the hook of, okay, there's a certain no reasonness to this movie. It's, it's intentionally trying to pull me out of my own reality, not quite into a surreal space like a David Lynch, but just it's trying to, it's trying to remove me from the, I don't live in the world this movie is filmed in. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when we get to those scenes that you're talking about, specifically the one with the giant music box, that is actually challenging to me, not because we're cooking up a bunch of black people, but because the movie has made me sort of, um, it's disaffected me to the world it's in. And mm, so I'm yeah. not upset by it, which is upsetting to me. I'm sitting here going, yeah, you know, sure. In this world, you, you need to make a music box. You got to crack a few eggs. And then I catch myself being like, this should be, I just watched a movie where one chicken killed another chicken. And I was like, I need to take a break. And now we're cooking up 25 people to like toot, toot some smoke. And I'm like, "Eh, you know, it's just a pigeon sitting on a branch reflecting on existence. It's just what we do here. (laughs) And that makes me feel that's where I get challenged. Yeah. Well, there's a blase kind of nature to how people approach the scenes. Right. And I think, you know, the one thing we're, we're starting to see, even as we talk about it, is there is this cruelty, this kind of, uh, you know, like man's inhumanity to man kind of thread. Right. That runs through so many of these scenes. But I also think to go back to the, the last conversation we had in the previous movie, there's also a certain futility to Mm. everybody's existence in this movie. You know, you were talking about the inherent futility to choosing a path that everybody else is like, why are you fighting chickens? Why is that so important to you? Yeah. And this is a movie where it's just like, it's all really sort of futile. We see this emotional moment behind glass that seems like it just happens to be there and we are not supposed to care. That's how that's sort of presented. People are dying right off the bat and we're kind of chuckling because it happens in sort of a silly way. And then we have these two, the two characters, the ones we were mentioning having their own arc, whose entire livelihood is let's sell some silly teeth. Mm-hmm. And we're like, what a stupid way to waste your day. Well, it also kind of tells the film's sense of a joke, which is like just deathly straight. You know, it's beyond even like a dark humor thing. It's just paste, you know, mm-hmm. it's just like uh, paint dry humor or something. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I thought the thing that I was thinking most recently about, this is a, like my ultimate example too of a film that is a, a real like head scratcher when you're watching it and ends up being so much more rewarding. You know, it's like anti-entertainment. 
Yeah. You know, you don't you don't go there because it's just heart pounding every second of the experience itself, but you're you're downloading information to take away with you. And uh, you know, hopefully you watch this film with some other people you can bounce it off of because it's just I've been every day talking about this movie, picking it apart, and just like I have more thoughts about it all the time. But the thing I'm kind of caught up on recently, which connects back to something you said about the framing earlier, which is like the blase nature of it. Some of the funniest stuff in the movie to me seems to be people who are maybe oblivious to what's going on or at least treating it with a deafness that's, uh, or maybe even if it's like self-centered. You know, there's a lot of, I think about like the couple that's making out in the bar and everybody's just staring at them. Mm-hmm. And it's like, every, you know, you were talking about who you perceive as the main character in each scene. And that's interesting because the movie stays so far back that I also find myself picking a main character in every scene. And it might just be possible that, you know, every character is just working through the scene like they're the central character. Yeah, you know what well, I mean. Like everybody's kind of going through their own life in a in a very pigeon existential way, and just thinking about their think about like the guy who okay, so somebody dies, and the woman goes, yeah, but I mean, I got this plate of food. I mean, what are we going to do? Big, even bigger problem is what do we do about this plate of food? Mm-hmm. And then like even the guy who raises his hand, who's now the main character of the whole movie, is like, I will take that beer. The beer, not even the whole plate. He's not even picking up the plot and running with it. He's like, hmm, you know what I need right now is a beer. I see a potential for free beer and that will assist my story. So I'll just go ahead and pick up that. And we see that also when the the horseman's in the bar and he's like, everybody, he's he's causing this ruckus. Everybody, get out! No women are allowed in here. This Uh and 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 I'm curious how this happened with you or or if you could tell with the audience. But sort of like that scene goes on and, and I'm just like, why is what's going on? This is insane. There's revolutionaries outside. And then suddenly my attention in that scene drifts to the left. And I go, is that guy uh-huh, just gonna uh-huh, play uh-huh. pinball this uh-huh. whole time? <laughs> right. And then he's... the scene and then the scene seems to go, yo, <laughs> stop playing pinball. Yeah. Right. Get the fuck out. <laughs> right. I mean, this is the part that's really amazing to me is, you know, I think about it like it's a game, like you could snap the the right thumbstick and go first person on any individual yeah. person and then they're <laughs> like in their own movie over there. <laughs> and I mean, that's the, the truest uh, compliment you could pay to any group of actors is that everybody was really thinking about their own scene sure. so deeply they could be the main character but fuck does this movie really kind of like ask everyone to do that in modern culture it's actually like referred to as main character syndrome have you heard of this in modern tiktok yes yeah in modern tiktok um yeah this is a movie for main character syndrome and for renaissance modern renaissance photo finally tiktok (laughs) and renaissance together at last a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on existence we have a website, it's doublefeature.fm, and on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash doublefeature. Thank you for coming along with two more weird movies, and a thanks to our executive producers. They are Henrik Dinter, The Habit of Unreason, Tom Leonard, Tony Gleed, and John. Thank you, guys. We have two more shows coming up. In an effort to try and... and lessen the uh, the headache that we've been piling on with the 
first four episodes of this year. We're going to do Would You Rather with Ready or Not next week. And, you know, super easy, fun time, not challenging, nothing to talk about. Um, just really good time. At the very least, not anti-entertainment films. So, you know. <laughs> That's true. The uh, The entertainment level is up to 11 on those. Um, and it is it is a really good time, but there's a, there's a fuck ton to chew on. Uh, Sasha Gray's in one of those movies. Oh. Uh, watch more fucking film. All right, bye.